you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com, thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Be sure to uh, see the video version of this uh, broadcast. Uh, you can go to youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss. Hit that bell notification. You can find out everything you need to know about the show and see what's going on there. Refer your friends to thecvpn.com, chrisvosspodcastnetwork.com. There's uh, nine podcasts podcasts are over there uh you can also now go to an amazon page that we've set up an amazon shop it's amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash chris voss and it features all the great authors that we've had on the show kind of some uh, review blurbs on them and so you can see that you can if you just want to go there and be like i want to see all the authors that have been on the chris voss show you can actually go there and see their books and of course the links to buy them which i'm sure the authors would certainly approve of you doing uh so be sure to check that out as well you can go to the new book club we just launched at patreon.com for just chris voss uh getting to the uh most interesting author that we have today this gentleman is frank heiler uh he has written the book white hot light light and he's actually written several different books which we'll get into and talk about uh frank is an emergency physician in albuquerque new mexico and the author of blood of strangers the laws of invisible things the right of thirst and his poetry has been featured in the atlantic the georgia review and poetry, among other things. Welcome to the show. How, how are you, Frank? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome sauce. So I got a chance to go through your book here, and this is an extraordinary, uh, not only human, but uh, a, a really interesting look into what goes on. Uh, give us some plugs on where people can find you on the interwebs and uh, everything else. Sure. Well, the book is available in um, most bookstores, I think, now, uh, Barnes & Noble, certainly, and um, on Amazon, always at this time, this era, particularly, um, their Amazon page. Uh, and it's, uh, I think pretty widely ar- around the country at the moment. Awesome sauce. So where, what was the reason that you wrote this book and what motivated you? Sure. So I, a little bit of, uh, I should probably back up a little bit. I'm a, I'm a physician. I'm an, I'm an emergency physician working in an emergency room and I've been doing this for quite a long time now, about uh, almost 25 years, about 25 years. And when I was young, uh, right out of my residency, I wrote a book called The Blood of Strangers, which was sort of a young person's take on the medical world, uh, the world of emergency medicine particularly. And um, after that, I kind of moved away a little bit from writing directly about medicine and uh, worked, wrote some fiction, some novels and and other things. And then uh, at this point, 20 years later, kind of in midlife, I realized that uh, it might be time to sort of revisit those same kinds of questions um, and issues that I was uh, trying to sort of wrestle with as a young person from the position of, of someone being older. And uh, so really this, this second, this book now, White Hot Light is, is uh, in many ways, 
sort of a, a midlife sequel of that first book. Mm-hmm. And it's been va- vaunted by uh, the New York Times book review, uh, another pitch-perfect book of short essays, uh, stories uh, that are very interesting, that are both human and, uh, uh, what's the right word? And they're, they're in an ER situation of desperation and emergency, and, and you guys are saving lives. Um, the uh, uh, Share with us some of the stuff out of the book that uh, uh, you'd like to Sure. I, the, the way the book is structured is, is um, I didn't take, people have asked me if I took notes and I didn't take notes. And I also took, uh, I was very careful to protect patient confidentiality and issues like that. Um, so basically what I, what I did is I would think, I thought back, I had a, a fellowship at a writer's colony, the McDowell colony um, during a sabbatical. And uh I just basically sat there and thought back of the events and stories that I'd been part of and seen over the last 20 or so years and sort of let my memory serve as, as a, as a, as a filtering device in a way. Um, the stories that I remembered most, most powerfully uh, came back to me. It was really interesting to, to sit there in a cabin and, and thinking back on your life. And I think that's true for everyone uh, if you had to do that. So, the, the, the stories tend to be short. Um, they tend to be uh, fairly easily, easily read. I mean, they're not, they're not long. They're, they're, I would say a little more vin- than vignettes, but very short kind of stories. And my point in writing about medicine was not simply to write about medicine, not simply to write about emergency medicine, but really to kind of explore some larger questions that a, that a novelist might explore. Um, how the medical world reveals truths uh, about our own lives, regardless of where we are or what kind of jobs we have. Um, so I don't, I don't, I'm hoping that, that readers will, will see that it's not entirely um, about sort of true stories from the ER, that it, the intention is really to, to use those kinds of events, which tend to be very, very striking and, 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 and powerful um, to also look beyond them at some of the questions that we all face all the time in our lives. So you talked about how you faced questions when you were young, and I imagine that was as, 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 a, as a doctor, I suppose? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a resident physician, meaning uh, during medical school and residency, and then shortly afterwards. And this is like when you're first getting into you know, seeing uh, what you're what you're going to see in an in an ER situation of trauma and everything else and 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 trying to probably um, either relate to it or try and put it in its place as to what you're dealing with because I imagine the first time that you're you're starting to really experience that that's kind of a you you have to somehow put that in your mind in a place that that you can deal with it I guess. Yeah, there's there's a, a very strong sort of apprenticeship process where you start you go to medical school and you're like a, and you get this you get suddenly exposed uh, particularly during your residency to these cases and events and and pressure and having to make quick decisions and all of that that's that's really a new world and the the, the human response to that initially is to get very detached and distant or start making like dark jokes, black humor, that kind of thing. Um, and it's a very predictable pattern. And wow. so, uh, and it happens quickly. Um, and everyone kind of goes through that. And then, and then you find that, you know, as time passes, 
you want to try to recapture some of the, um, I guess, not, maybe not humanity, but at least the emotional accessibility that you, that you quickly learn to protect yourself from mm-hmm. um, in, in any kind of uh, job like this. Yeah. I was just going to say, you probably do have to build a little bit of barriers or, or like you say, initially, sometimes you knee jerk to some barriers as a human being, because, because, you know, you, there, there's a part of you have to protect and you're trying to do, uh, this beautiful thing to save humans and save human life and, and, uh, you know, be a protector. But, but then again, I mean, the shock and horror of it all, I mean, there's lots of stories in the book. I, I believe there's one story about, a. Uh, a, a veteran who's kind of brain filled with shrapnel. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of stuff that you have to deal with. And, and, uh, and I know the hours are long for doctors uh, and what they have to go through. Um, what, uh, what were some of the stories in the book that uh, maybe you want to share that, that stood out to you that were maybe changed you uh, from a human level? I think there's a lot of, a lot of those, a lot of stories like that in, mm-hmm. in the book ranging from, really dramatic events uh, um, like somebody uh, uh, the beginning, the first story in the book is about uh, a boy who was uh, shot um, and he's about exactly the same age as my son. And they, they, they weren't, they didn't look alike, but nonetheless, I mean, the first reaction you have as a parent, when you see um, a, a boy shot is you think of your own, your own family, your own life. Um, that's just one, one of many examples. Another, another example is somebody that I worked with um, in a story called the sunflower who uh, was a physician's assistant who um, I realized after he, he, he had some, he basically had a, tr- a tragic event occur to him. Um, and I, even though I worked with him for years, I never really knew him until after he was gone. And I realized that he had been a photographer and he had traveled around the state on his motorcycle, taking really beautiful photographs. It was a, it was a, a a private um, life that he had that I didn't see and no one else knew about it either. So there's a lot of stories like that in the book that my intention about it was not to write about medicine from a technical perspective, uh, perspective, um, but to write about uh, the stories that don't we don't all often always associate with hospitals or medicine. Typically, the way that um, hospital stories are presented, it's always you know heroic doctors doing heroic thing, that kind of stuff, right? Or there might be some salacious thing, you know. Um, and I was more interested in in not just doctors, but also everyone else in the hospital, nurses, the. The, the, the support staff, the techs, their, their sort of uh, role and humanity and all of this. Um, and also, and my own evolution, I guess, as you age. Um, and, I, and you and I, I think, are probably about the same age or close to it. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, if you think back on your life, uh, you'll have a different perspective than you did when you were starting Um yeah, I, I now nowadays I've got. I mean, you at at fifty. I'm fifty two now, and and you have a pattern of life that you can look back on, where you can see the wreckage, you can see, you can see the patterns, right? Mm-hmm. You can go, mm-hmm. wow, 
that really, I should have went to, I, wouldn't, I should have seen a psychologist earlier. <laughs> yeah. Saved a lot. That was a mistake, um, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you can see the body stream behind you for 50 years and you're just like, and then, and then it becomes more obvious. Uh, yeah. I should have done something different with that, but you know, I mean, there, there's what's hindsight's 2020. It's interesting to me. Um, you know, I've, I've always looked up to what doctors do. I'm one of those people that if you try and take my blood you probably know these people, I will, I will almost pass out. I have to eat like a big right. meal before I take my blood. If I see too much blood on a movie screen, I'll pass out. So I have a lot of respect for what you guys do because you guys save lives. And if I came across some of the scenes that you guys have to deal with every day, I'd just be, I'd probably just pass out and I, or I'd just be like, I'm, I, I don't know what to do here. I don't, I'm out. Um, and uh, uh, and so what you guys do is astounding and beautiful, but the humanity of it is something I've always wondered about because, um, you know, you guys are human too. I mean, you guys, you guys aren't above this sort of thing. You guys see some of the stories in the book are quite extraordinary, especially when uh, the attempt there is to really try and save life when it, when it almost seems like it's not worth saving or it's, it's not, not that it's not worth saving, but the, the guy's gone, right? Right. And and you guys are still in there trying to 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 find a miracle if you can. And, and sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, p- people want to believe that we save lots of lives. And of course, you know, statistically, sure, people's lot. You do say, occasionally save people. Um, not as often. I hate to say it as as uh, most people want to think, you know, it, most of the time when people are going to die they're going to die. And when they're going to get better, they're going to get better. And there's only a pretty small window where modern medicine really makes a difference. Hmm. And the whole enterprise is our, is, is um, really designed for that relatively small percentage of people that you can make a difference for. So the majority of the time we're not saving lives. You know, we're, uh, um, we're trying to see people, we're trying to pick people out of the uh, of the crowd who, who we might be able to help. Um, it's not as, uh, it's not nearly as dramatic in the, in the traditional way that, that society views medicine, uh, as that, um, there are different, uh, there are lots of different challenges associated with it, but most of the people we see will either get worse or better on their own. Yeah. Um, and in terms of your first point, which was that, uh, you know, you, you see blood and you get, you get faint. You'd be surprised. You see blood a few times and you'd be just fine. You know, yeah. I mean, hum- people have a very great essential toughness and resilience and anyone who goes through this process will emerge from it just fine. Yeah. So the doctors and nurses are not any different from anyone else. Do you feel that, do you feel that the shows like ER or house, um, over glorify and maybe give a wrongful perception to your industry and and what you guys do of course completely (laughs) hollywood Hollywood. (laughs) yeah yeah exactly people want to see that they want to believe you know everything there's like magic answer and if you're smart enough like house or sherlock holmes you can reason your way to the to the answer that no one else can find and that's just not not the truth i mean really most of the time you're just you're trying to check the box. You're, you're get, gathering the same information that anyone else would gather. There's no terrible insight or great or, or remarkable intellect that applies to almost 
everything in medicine. Um, there's other qualities like diligence, like uh, uh, being thorough and careful. Um, and there are certainly judgments that you make. Um, but we like to think that this world is, is elegant and orderly. And if you're smart enough, you can, you can find the answer. And the world is not or elegant and not orderly, and it's often it's chaotic, and uh, <laughs> and half the time we don't know what we're talking about, and that's the truth. <laughs> well, a lot of times you guys are presented with situations that are that are uh, you know you don't have a lot of time to sit around and go, well, what should we do with this? I mean, you guys are in the ER, you guys are, I mean, the situation is immediate. Uh, you know, you don't you don't have a lot of time to, you know. But well, we should have a meeting and see what we should do about this. Right, you, know, right. you guys are you guys are on top right. of it. And it's life or death, and seconds matter. And I remember uh, years ago, we owned a courier company, and we used to do um, uh, blood and, and urine sample, basically body fluid samples. Um, and we would have to we did the stat service. We'd have to go to the ER, pick up whatever blood you know whatever body samples were that they needed tests on because they're you know they had some guy in the er and they're like we got to figure out why this guy is, has a problem and you know we had to race it to a company like arup um and then you know they had to get it done it had to be done very fast because lives are on the line and there were times where we were picking up blood and uh bringing it back to the hospital uh from arup to um because they had a patient on the table who was bleeding internally and they couldn't figure out where he's bleeding internally. And I remember there was one time I, sw- I th- seemed like we did four to five runs for blood for just one guy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, that may be too much, but it, it was like at least three, I think where we did uh, a blood run and they're like, yeah, he's still on the table. We still haven't figured out where, where the, uh, the bleeding out and just the level of, of, uh, expertise and that has to go into that but extraordinary performance as a human being and being able to deal with it but then you have the humanity side of it which you deal with in the book as well you know how you process it and some of the experiences that you have that that balance that out if you want to expand a little bit on those yeah sure um the when people think about emergency rooms emergency medicine they think of lights and sirens and people getting shot and everyone running around yelling stat and stuff like that and (laughs) the whole hollywood thing yeah yeah and uh, and sure, there's a small percentage of it where it really it is a question of minutes, and it does happen, um, and it happens fair, you know, not not uncommonly, but almost every most of what you do is not about that. It's an it's an older it's an old old lady with abdominal pain in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. um, or it's a kid with an earache. I mean, it's it's or somebody with a heart attack that you're it may not be so clear that they have a heart attack. That's, those are the sorts of things. And then every, and then every once in a while, you've got, you know, all the drama and the adrenaline running around. And the fact is that most of the time, you know what to do. It's not very, it's not terribly complicated. um, These highly dramatic moments, the challenge more has to do with doing them, Mm -hmm. doing them successfully acting. um, And, and not, it's not so much knowing what to do because usually it's when people are in a car wreck or shot or something, what needs to be done is quite, quite clear. Mm. Uh, it's just a question of doing it fast enough and efficiently enough. Mm. 
Is is one of the biggest challenges is, uh, you know, you said there's a small percentage of people that you can actually save. Is it just it's just one of the factors that by the time they get to you, I mean, obviously they've been through some sort of trauma and they have to wait for an ambulance to show up. Then an ambulance shows up and the paramedics do everything they can. But I mean, there I don't know, maybe sometimes there's a, it's the time of it. Yeah, I think a lot of what I meant with that by that is that the world gives us there's illnesses like someone who has, let's say, advanced cancer, for example, then there's nothing you're going to do that's going to help them. Mm. Um, Or somebody has pneumonia or a kidney infection, you might give them some antibiotics, but they're going to get better. They're going to get better. And, and the minority of, uh, of, of cases, uh, patients coming in are at the tipping point where a medical intervention will really, really help them. Mm-hmm. And particularly a quick one. Now, somebody getting shot, somebody in a car wreck is an example of that, you know, because that, that's life-saving. So the trauma surgeons take them to the operating room and they save them mm-hmm. um, or not. But so there are examples, certainly. And, mm-hmm. uh, but a lot of what we see in most is patients who don't have anywhere else to go. Um, you know, the, the emergency room and emergency departments around the country are in a lot of ways um, – uh, sort of like the canary in the coal mine for the country itself as a whole. Wow. Um, you see people who don't have doctors have no way of getting in to see the doctor who run out of their medications. You see the consequences of poverty. You see the consequences of substance abuse, uh, mental illness. Um, all of the social problems that confront us as a country and as a nation uh, are revealed in the ER like few other places. Wow. That's extraordinary. I never, I never thought of it that way. I know there's a lot of people who go to the ER and, like you say, they can't reach the doctor. Um, I imagine. I mean, you, I imagine you guys get dumped on with everything. Have you seen over the course of your career? Have you seen an increase of that? Uh, you know, with some of the uh, we deal with a, a lot of different things with uh, our society, and it seems like a lot of things are in downgrade when it comes to people's incomes, uh, people being poor. Have you seen that scale up, or has it been a continuum? Absolutely. Um, my, my anecdotal impression, I mean, of course, you know, I'm only one, one person working in one hospital, but my, uh, in a poor state, um, in a poor state, my anecdotal ex- experience is yes, the people are, are a lot of people out there are really struggling that, mm-hmm. that when you write a prescription for an antibiotic that costs 60 or $70, um, and that is uh, an amount that, that they simply cannot come up with. These are illustrations over and over again. Um, mm-hmm. people have nowhere to go. They're losing, you know, when you have hard economic times, they lose their jobs. They, um, um, they, uh, they don't have access, they don't have other places to go. And it's, it, the mood seems in the country, at least in, in, in the Albuquerque area, certainly things are not getting better. I mean, particularly this, uh, in the COVID pandemic when, um, so many are really struggling to, or make ends meet. So many mm. jobs have been lost. Um, and so I think that the uh, emergency medicine is a particularly good place to sort of take the temperature of, wow. of, of, uh, of society as a whole. Maybe we need to have more presidential candidates and uh, congressional candidates uh, or, or elected officials visit ERs and spend a day. <laughs> that would be great. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean the ER, the ER is not is not really about uh, the high drama and everyone running around. Um, at mm-hmm. least, 
not probably 90% of it is about the other. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, uh, how do you feel about, I don't know if you talk about this in the book, I didn't get fully through it, but how do you feel about the, there's a a gentleman who wrote a book called the death of expertise. I'm trying to get him on. It's a little bit older book. And so there's not pushing the publicity, but, uh, um, it's been extraordinary over the years to see, doctors maligned with this uh everybody knows it all sort of thing and it got worse with covid and you see people questioning doctors and you're just like you know especially with like uh what was it the uh anti-vaxxers and stuff and you know you guys are professionals you spend years uh if not i don't know a decade or something like that in schooling and books and education and some guy reads a facebook post and and suddenly he thinks he knows more and you guys have to confront that like i want to punch those people in the face and i'm not a doctor but you guys have to deal with it and then you you have a situation where a patient's fighting you which i don't remember 20 years ago when i used to go see doctors that we used to fight with the doctor we just went okay we'll take the pills and go home you know it's it's interesting there, there definitely is this um I think you said the death of expertise, the idea that when knowledge is disseminated on the internet, that everybody, everyone's opinion is as good as everyone else's in any area, not just medicine. Um, That is potentially a dangerous view, I I think, for society. Uh, The idea that, um, because there are people who know more uh, than than other people, and and it's not necessarily by any means exclusive to medicine. Medicine is one of those tricky things because, it's very hard for patients to know whether they're getting good, good medical care. Um, it, they really don't. It's very hard for anybody, no matter who they are, who is not that familiar with how medical decision-making is made, to know whether they're getting good care. So they tend to rely on secondary cues from the service industry. So are, were people nice to them? Did they, did they get a blanket? You know, did they have to wait a long time? Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not joking. This is your I mean, Yelp reviews, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, uh, like, you know, hotel management sort of thing. They and, saved uh, my life, but I didn't get enough blankets. <laughs> well, it may be, and I waited so long and they, and they, you know, there's, uh, and so the cor- the corporate influence on medicine has taken full advantage of those things. Wow. And so a lot of times it's, it's increasingly becoming, a customer service based field, um, which is, which is a a dangerous precedent to set Mm -hmm. because it's not the same as um, buying a product, uh, selecting a car to buy or something like that. It's, it's a, it's a, there's a fundamental difference between that contract between physician and patient, then between retailer and uh, consumer. Yeah, we saw we saw kind of some of that through the uh, crisis with the uh, uh, the opioid epidemic, didn't we? Uh, uh, epidemic where people were just like, "Hey, I, I want some drugs," and and doctors started going, "Okay, whatever makes you happy, customer service." I don't know. A hundred percent, you're absolutely wow. right. And wow. and what happened with the opioid crisis was that industry, pharmaceutical industry. Uh, basically came up with fictitious data uh, that that uh, said that opioids should be used for chronic pain. Um, and they marketed, sometimes fraudulently, this idea around the country uh, to physicians um, and also to patients. And then um, in part because of exactly what you said, 
people keeping people happy, a lot of doctors started prescribing and were encouraged to to prescribe opioids, and patients became um, basically put got a, a very large numbers of people on opioids in that way, in a very cynical kind of way, uh, driven by a, a quite predatory pharmaceutical industry. And, and also the fact that it's much easier to just write somebody a prescription for, for Percocet um, and, and get them out of the office so that they don't, you know, complain or what have you. And so wow. it was kind of a perfect storm. And a lot of people got, um, got uh, hooked on, on oral opioids and then moved from there to, um, to heroin and IV forms. And then heroin and fentanyl and these sorts of things have never been easier to get. Yeah, uh, than they are now. I mean, the war on drugs, you know, it's, it's unbelievable how, uh, how plentiful these things are. Yeah. Um, we'll throw, we'll throw, uh, you know, someone of color into prison because let's that's be right. honest, what's going on, um, for, you know, an ounce of marijuana. Um, yep. and then, and, but you know, Hey, go for the thing. Um, it's interesting to me what you mentioned that, you know, Hey, we'll just give them a prescription. Otherwise they'll complain to management and tell them how horrible I am. Um, and you probably do see people that come in the ER that, um, you know, I've heard some extraordinary stories where people actually break a finger or something just to get, you know, their fix. And mm-hmm. you guys can probably really smell that when it comes in where you're like, I know this guy's an addict and he's, he's just trying to hustle for, for stuff. Yeah, it's very, very easy. It's very transparent when that wow. happens. It's happened less now because there's been a crackdown on it. Um, mm-hmm. But it's very easy to see, and and it's also kind of tragic. I mean, when people are reduced to that point, you know, when they're when they when they're feeling that bad that they have to come to the ER and make make something up to get a yeah. short term shot of something, it's it's really um, it's fair, that's a pretty tragic person. You know, I had in 2004, that's when I first found about Oxycontin and my uh, friend, uh, her sister had uh, gotten uh, really almost killed in a car accident and she was mm-hmm. in a head rack with the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and so she, she lost everything because she'd been in an accident, lost her job. And so she ended up staying with her mom and they put her on Oxycontin and I never heard of it before that, but this is like 2004. And like, they talk about how bad it got recently. And you're like, I started hearing about this stuff a long time ago. And so she got hooked on that and she would constantly use it for pain and, you know, it became a, an, an addiction. And then once she got better, she, you know, once she couldn't get it from doctors anymore, she switched to heroin and then she started working the street and then she eventually died of an overdose. Um, and that's when that's, I went, I'm never taking that crap ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a very sad story. And it, it's a very co- enormously common one. I mean, that's wow. a very common road. Wow people get an injury they get they get they get hooked on the oral opioids and then uh, uh and then either continued with oral opioids or or moved on to street drugs and that's and um it killed an enormous number of people i mean mm-hmm. it was not this this was a just an absolute um uh travesty and the sackler family especially um purdue pharma but not just them others as well Mm-hmm. Um, were uh, very actively promoting opioid use at that time. Um, and um, and still there has not been sort of a, a full reckoning of, of any of that. There's, there's class action lawsuits and so on going on. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, we'll, 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 we'll go get El Chapo and spend all the money for the drug war and put everyone in jail. But uh, you, you right. look at the, what they were dispensing in West Virginia, places like That's West right. Virginia, that were That's just like right. a drug cartel. Sort of yeah, it is, it is very hard, very hard, honestly, to distinguish between the drug cartels and that sort of thing. And, yeah. and as you said, they, they put enormous numbers of people of color, African-Americans in particular during the, during the crack epidemic, uh, in prison for long periods of time for very mild or minor offenses, relatively mm-hmm. speaking. Yeah. Um, We've done a lot of talking about that on the Chris Foss show. We've had a lot of authors on and Black Lives Matter, of course, has been a theme through this. Uh, in your book, what, what's the biggest takeaway or some of the biggest takeaways you'd like for people to really uh, get when they read it or walk away with? Well, you know, I think that um, one of the ways we sort of examine life in, in our own lives and is through the through the context of, the st- of stories of others. So, it was uh, uh, an attempt to sort of make sense of my own life in in, in a way um, mm-hmm. to try to see the world um, after twenty five years of, of being exposed frequently to often very very dark stories and very dark events. Um, not exclusively dark ones, though. Um, but nonetheless, and, uh, so what does that reveal about the world we live in? How do you make sense of that? And ultimately, how do you find some sense of sort of peace, um, not only for yourself, but some, perhaps some sort of wisdom, um, Mm -hmm. in the face of, you know, what, what seems often very inexplicable Mm -hmm. and, uh, um, and deeply, deeply unsettling. And that's in some ways, it's almost a Buddhist kind of question, Mm. And and so that was the intent behind this for me behind this book, not not to make points about medicine or specifically or or uh, the opioid epidemic or policy or anything like that. It was more more to explore um, these larger questions that have to do with uh, reconciling and uh, and hopefully synthesizing the, the the experiences of our own lives, so much you- like a novelist would do. Mm-hmm. So you hope people will take away from your experience, uh, maybe better lessons on life or a contemplation of what their experience of life through your stories and, and through watching you, of course, go through your own, uh, you know, sort of catharsis of how to deal with these things and how to put things in peace uh, with as much as you can. Yeah, I'm not, I don't presume to be instructing anyone. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, um, I'm yeah. not trying to tell anybody what, uh, what, what lessons to learn. Um mm-hmm. More and more, it was an attempt to sort of uh, portray my own my own movement or s- my own attempt to to find lessons. Yeah, um, and to uh, and to work through some of these some of these questions. And that's the beauty of what we get through stories and books and movies and everything else and why we collect stories is because we watch them and, and, and it touches us or moves us or motivates us in some way where we look at, you know, just like you looked at the uh, young boy on the, on the table as your son, where you look at it and go, you reflect on your own life and you, and you hopefully take lessons from it as well. Um, did, did, did you hope in the book that when people read uh, this material in your prior books that 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 they would hopefully maybe come away with a little bit more respect or understanding of what goes on in your industry and and maybe um, you know just just respect it more or have a better education of it I guess 
Yeah, maybe not so much respect. I'm not. I'm not out there trying to <laughs> to get people to say those. doctors are great. Yeah, no, no, it's yeah. not that. It, it was more. It was more sort of um, trying to offer a window into an often mischaracterized world. Yeah, uh, that I think you touched on a little bit with uh, with sort of popular shows. You know, like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's more ER shows on TV than there are. Yeah. I think just about anything else. So. Yeah, I wish I wish we were all that smart and good looking. Is all I can say. You know. Um, so, uh, um, just, just trying to sort of pull the curtain back a little bit toward what seemed to me more essential about, um, about this sort of work or anyone who does work like it. And it's not Mm -hmm. simply doctors who do that. For me personally, I hope people would find the more respect for your guys' industry. It was extraordinary to, uh, to watch, this COVID thing with the, with the, it, just the insanity of people going, you know, I, I watched the doctors, uh, in, in that were, uh, doing the videos going, please God help us stop being stupid people. Um, you know, and they were talking about their experience and, and they had people that just run around going, I'll do whatever I want, hold my beer. And, uh, and you're just like, these folks are trying to save everyone's lives. They're overwhelmed to an extraordinary thing, especially like in New York and some cities now are spread around the nation and you're just like in their fit. And then, and then seeing the, uh, um, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but seeing the, seeing some of the nurses go out and just get, uh, just get ridiculed and, and treated like crap. Uh, and all they're trying to do is save people's lives. They're just like, Hey man, we're just trying to help you help us help you. And, uh, uh, it was, it was, a uh, it was, it was, it was same thing for me to watch. I, I couldn't imagine being on the other side of it. Yeah. It's uh, our response. Our national response to this has been really perplexing to be mm-hmm. honest. Um, it's uh, for many, it's still abstract and because of its, because of its abstraction, they can uh, fools rush in, frankly, you know, the <laughs> idea that the idea that, uh, um, that, somehow wearing a face mask is a political statement Um, when really it's like, this isn't in during world war II, uh, the United States was not saying, um, you know, there were, there weren't political divisions with the United States fighting, fighting Nazi Germany. Right. And this is not in the same way at any rate. And this is, this is an, this is actually analogous to that. This is a, this is a, a enormous world event. Um, arguably, uh, certainly in a hundred years, the greatest uh, public health challenge um, that anyone has had. It should be a unifying force um, where we put aside some political divisions and say, okay, what's the practical way of controlling this thing? Yeah. Um, not, not, a, not, a, not an opportunity to, to uh, sort of falsely confuse something like wearing a face mask, which is like you know, wearing a helmet in battle. Yeah. Um, yeah. with, with a political, with a political statement. I mean, it's ridiculous. And on the, and on the national level, I think our, our failures have been just extraordinary mm-hmm. from, uh, from, uh, from the, from the point of view of simply organizing a national response. We've left hospitals and States completely on their own, reinventing the wheel, um, doing the best they can. Uh, we have not, um, created an adequate, uh, system of either testing 
or personal protective equipment or yeah. contact tracing or any of the basic things that the federal government should have done. And really in my lifetime and previous, really all you know, previous administrations, Republican or Democrat, I would think would have happened. I just, mm -hmm. it's just mystifying to me that yeah. as a nation, we've responded to this in the way that we have. I think, I think the internet is part of partly, you know, like, like we say, everyone's an expert now and they read anything on the internet, but there, there has been a death of expertise. And I don't know if you ever saw the movie idiocracy, but it seems like we're trying to make <laughs> yeah. that. It seems like I, when I first saw it, I was like, this is the dumbest thing. I couldn't even barely watch it. Now I watch it and I go, this is a documentary. This isn't fiction anymore. I know this is where we're headed. Um, you know, I watched the videos and, and the, the doctors and nurses were just extraordinary in how they would try and educate the public. And I would watch them suit up and put on all the PPE and stuff that they have to do. And, yeah. and you realize they wear that for like 12 to 18 hour days, just on probably normal shifts, uh, let alone what a lot of them were going through and in, in the hellscape of, of the overload of COVID. Um, and then you see these people like, if I have to put on a mask for five minutes, it, it stops oxygen in my brain. I'll die. And you're like, seriously? <laughs> yeah. I mean, have you seen a nurse suit up? <laughs> yeah. No, I know. There's, no, it's, it's really a shame because this could have been an opportunity for a collectivism, collective yeah. spirit and unity in this country. I thought I was hoping so too. And instead it seems to, so far it's been something that's put pressure on society, um, and uh, and our divisions have come up. I mean, uh, it's split, we've splintered along in the face of this pressure collectively instead of uniting, and that's a that's a shame. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, hopefully, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, COVID is just COVID is such an extraordinary. Uh, I mean, if you could pick something that could just to take us on and wipe us out, not only from a, a economic aspect, but from a, from a health aspect, from a, a being able to interact with each other aspect. I've got two sisters in care centers right now and yeah. COVID just stalks outside their door every day. In fact, they admitted one uh, new resident recently and they, you know, they fortunately quarantined him. They did everything right. But uh, the guy had COVID and if they hadn't yeah. done everything right, that whole, the whole care center wiped you know like we've been seeing so um you've got a few other books that you've written that are pretty interesting i don't know if you want to plug those as well uh, sure well the first like i said the first book was the blood of strangers um mm -hmm. which is similar to this um except again um written from a different point of view i think mm -hmm. and then um a couple of novels the most recent one is uh, a book called right of thirst which was a uh, which was about sort of international aid work Mm -hmm. um, set in, uh, in the Middle East. Um, I spent time as a child overseas and in the Middle East, particularly. And so, um, I would certainly, uh, that book is available on Amazon as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but they're all published by HarperCollins. Uh, so the HarperCollins website, um, should have both right of thirst and, uh, and white hot light. Um, and, uh, the blood of strangers is still in print. So yeah, it was a very popular later. book. Um, yeah. what, what were some of the things that you, you changed your mind on maybe between blood of strangers and this new book, uh, white hot light. I think you become, um, I think you realize that, that you're part of a larger story a little bit better when you're older. Mm -hmm. 
that you, that you, you know, when you're young, everything seems very individual, uh, your own individual ambitions, um, your own individual hopes or hopes or whatever they may be. And as you get older and more, have a little more perspective, I think you realize that you're really just one of many that you're all going, people are all tend to go through very similar events that you're, you're part of a larger, um, uh, broader human experience that it's not singular to you that um, life is sort of rippling through you. You know, you start mm-hmm. from the beginning as a, as a kid and some of the stories in this book are talk about that. Some, uh, some events uh, back when I was, you know, even very young and then you're, you're, you're a, a son or a daughter, you move through life, you have a children of your own um, and you can see that you're on a, on a path that is very well trodden um, that you're just one of many. And, uh, there's a certain, almost a certain comfort in that, in that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't know if that answers your question at all. But does it? No, that does. That's great. Does, when you say there's a certain comfort in that is, is the comfort in finding that you don't have to carry the world and it's not your responsibility. So, uh, or, or that you're in a larger part of a map and, and you realize that, that is your contribution or yeah i think that the, the, the your own individual uh, um we i mean america is a very uh, isolated society it's full of it's a nation of individuals and mm-hmm. we want and we value individualism um and there have been some benefits to that but also some great costs there's a lot of loneliness in america it's one mm-hmm. of the things you see in emergency room a lot people wow. alone uh people coming in toward the end of their lives with hardly anyone around them um, and over and over again, you see that in this country. And, uh, um, I think you realize that as you age, and this is not some kind of great profound observation, but that, that the, the things that you do understand about this life tend to be one another from, uh, from relationships you have with other people and your own sort of in the context of your life, and how it relates to others, whether they're your, your children or your family, um, that we're not truly in isolation it's a mistake to think of ourselves that way um and to think of our own individual uh ambitions is so terribly important um mm-hmm. you you realize that you're not going to set the world on fire you know <laughs> <laughs> right the world doesn't revolve around you, when you get <laughs> yeah older, exactly that's exactly yeah. right you're you know you're you're a witness and you're part of it um but you're not as important as you thought you were when you're yeah. young. I think that's one of the things I've discovered as I get older. I realize that there are millions of people that pass this way and I'm going to leave some footprints behind, but probably the dust will blow them away very shortly. Um, hopefully I'll make some impressions that will be lasting. Uh, and that would be my contribution. But, but when you look at the, the grand scope of the names that are remembered and the people that are remembered, I mean, it, it's very few of the, of the mass that do, but um do you do you hope the do you find a lot of people that read this book? Uh, do they come from the medical community? Do you get a lot of feedback from from uh, young people that are going through school with doc uh, being wanting to be a doctor or a nurse in the medical field, and they're and they they read your books or or is it a I would say it's probably a good book for them to prepare, especially for this book because they can see what 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 you've done down the line in the experience of of hopefully me what they learn from without having to go through all the years uh learning it themselves maybe well to be answered your question the book was published this just a couple of days ago yep. so i just don't know what the 
what the people's responses uh-huh. are going to be to it. Um, I, I, you know, I hope that it would have some, uh, some relevance to students. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first, my first one, the blood of strangers is still used in a lot of medical school and there college you. classes. Um, and I'm hoping that this someday will, will maybe take its, uh, be by its side in that. Um, mm-hmm. So I, it, to answer your question, is this written for medical person people? And the answer is no. Yeah. It's written for a general audience and even more than medical people. It's mm-hmm. written for people who know nothing about medicine or may not even be interested in medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely eye-opening. I mean, I, I'm kind of familiar with what goes on in the ER, uh, but, but uh, this definitely goes into depth and, and gives a very sobering, visceral sort of uh, exposure to it all. And what's interesting, too, is we see the, we see the stories through your eyes and your experience with it and, and your experience of dealing with these cases and kind of your mental process as well. And uh, I think that, that, that makes it even more interesting. Um, the, there was another question I had for you. It was along the medical students, but I, I think this is something that's important for people to read to see what's going on to, in my opinion, gain some better respect for what goes on in our mental community. Um, oh, it was about uh, – you probably see a lot of NER people that are people that are, you know, lonely, like you mentioned before, um, that are hypochondriacs, that they're just looking for attention or, or whatever. And, and you mentioned the loneliness and I thought that was kind of interesting. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, loneliness is a big part of hypochondria. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the wanting to be seen, wanting to be mm. significant in some way in front of, uh, in front of others. Um, you know, the longer I've done this, the more I realize just how much our sort of human psychology plays into symptoms. Um, and we, we take, we tend to sort of talk about you know, these distinctions between, Oh, it's all in your head, that kind of thing. Um, and a lot of things are in our head. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the, uh, the reasons that people come to the ER have, have to do as much with their emotional state, or their psychological state than any physical ailment, than any traditionally physical ailment, I should say. Um, Maybe you need real... a psychologist out front first as the yeah. first gatekeeper. Right. Well, these are, <laughs> these are, you know, and there, and it also speaks to our heart. I mean, these are real problems. These are not, these mm. are not, they're not any less real than, than physical problems, but we see enormous amount of mental illness, for example, because as a society, we basically said, you're you're mentally ill. You have a severe severe mental illness. You're out you're out on the street. I mean, we'll cover your meds, but a lot of you know a lot of homelessness, a lot of substance abuse, a lot of things like that. Wow. Um, a lot of uh, the people who have been sort of cast aside uh, by American life. And you guys, uh, I, I would imagine, you guys have seen enough of the stories. You know the timelines. Like you can read the future. Uh, where you can see someone who comes in, especially maybe in that situation, where you know how it goes, and and you know you're going to see them again more and more, and and maybe there's going to be a downgrading of where they where they uh, where they end up. Absolutely, you see a young person, for example, who's withdrawing from alcohol, somebody in their twenties who's just shaking and has DTs. You know that that is a bad path that they're going down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then unless something changes that, 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 you know, how that story will end. Yeah. And so, and yes, we see that a lot. We see a lot of those, those kinds of, um, patterns, uh, that, that will end badly. Um, and you know that they will. 
Yeah. Uh, so you try to do what you can to intervene and try, and you hope that you will, you know, um, maybe make someone change their mind um, yeah. along the way. When you go home at night, do you think about those stories? Do, do you try and do you try and turn the switch? Because I imagine you can't you can't spend your whole life in depth with that. You've got to find some peace or or distraction or something. I, I would I would drink heavily. <laughs> yeah. No. I, you know, you get really good at turning it off. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it inevitably it spills out into mm-hmm. how you look at the world and how you look at you know, into your personal life. It spills out a little bit for sure, but. Um, uh, you get pretty good at at uh, at leaving the hospital and putting it in the rearview mirror and not. So to answer your question, when I'm off work, do I, am I like thinking about cases? No, I'm not. Um, mm-hmm. I think I probably was at one point more than I do now. But mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah, I, I can. You get quite good at compartmentalizing, regardless of what kind of work you do. Uh, mm-hmm. When people, you know, come home, they're not always in their minds aren't always in the office right (laughs) fortunately because who wants to live like that you know yeah that would that would be a tough thing to do Um, for any of us yeah and i i remember i you know i've had friends that their their wives or girlfriends when they run to the er every time the kid gets sniffles and and you're like that's quite extraordinary you look at the burden on insurance and everything else um i had one friend who was a hypochondriac and for 40 years they were dying of something at any given time but somehow they uh-huh. lived 40 years <laughs> and uh that's reassuring isn't it that's good yeah and they yeah. and they would go to the doctor and the doctor would say there's there's literally nothing wrong with you and try, try and apply to him that you know loneliness and anxiety and fear and you know maybe to see a psychiatrist and they would literally go get a second opinion you know most people when they go to the yeah. doctor if they go get a second opinion it's because doctor goes you have cancer and they're like i'm getting a second opinion this person when they <laughs> they wouldn't get a second, you know, the doctor said, there's nothing wrong with you. They'd be like, I'm going to get a second opinion. <laughs> right. I'm going to find a doctor right. who tells me there's something wrong with me. I'm going to uh, go to the Mayo Clinic. I'm going to go to the Mayo yeah. Clinic. <laughs> there you go. Well, this has been an interesting discussion in depth uh, and uh, the beauty of humanity, uh, doctors, uh, ER, uh, hospitals. I, I would hope more people would, would give you guys. I, I actually spent a little bit of time in the ER recently with my uh, sister at a care center who got a lung infection. And they weren't sure if she had COVID, but uh, she developed some sort of weird lung infection. It was pretty bad there and drained her and everything. But we went into ER and uh, it was crazy, that some of the people that were in there. And it, it wasn't they were bad people, but there was there was one guy in there with dementia who was uh, swatting at nurses and wanting to throw fists, uh, and he was clearly demented. So he, yeah. he, you know, you felt sorry for him, but he was, <laughs> he was starting to freak everybody out. And he, I mean, and you guys have to deal with this on a daily basis. And and uh, I, I just, I just, uh, I, I just think you guys are great in having to deal with it. I mean, I know you guys get paid for this, and it's your job, and whatever people want to dispense with it. But this really is a, uh, to me, you guys are just really great human beings. <laughs> That's that's my vote. <laughs> well, thank you. I, you know, I think that there people are no different. Um, I mean, yeah. there's it's easy to claim virtue, but really, I mean, there's not there's nothing different about doctors. Or I don't know, Frank. I, I'd have a hard time dealing with it. I, and I would go. <laughs> I would go to the drink. I, I you know I own businesses. I was eighteen. I, I drank a lot of vodka. And that was over that stuff. I, don't know, I just, I find what you guys are doing extraordinary. So I think yeah. it's awesome. Uh, anything more you want to tell us as we pass the book and, and uh, pick that baby up on Amazon or local? No, dealers? 
No, thank you. And I hope, uh, I hope that your listeners will uh, take a look at this. It's, um, I hope that it's not your typical kind of book about medicine. Definitely. Definitely. And it's not the Hollywood ER shows that you see. <laughs> it's extraordinary how many of those are. I'm like, there's people who like a lot of ER stuff on TV and there's people who are plotting to kill people with all the, yeah. you know, the, the, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, I don't even watch TV anymore because I can't deal with it. But all the, uh, you know, murder, murder stuff on TV. You're like, I, I've seen enough of it to go. I'm never killing anyone because my DNA. I'll, I'll screw up the crime scene and that'll just happen. So guys, <laughs> uh, be sure to check it out. It's uh, Frank Heiler. It's his white hot light. 25 years in emergency medicine. If you're not going to learn something from this gentleman after 25 years, uh, I don't know what to tell you. Um, and it's really beautiful. You can check out his other book, The Blood of Strangers, which has been hugely popular. Uh, he's a great author, and I think you'll love the book. Thanks for spending some time with us, Frank. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Awesome sauce. To my audience, be sure if you uh, didn't get a chance to watch the video version of this, go to youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss. Hit that uh, like button so you get all the different things that we do. Further show your friends, neighbors, relatives, go to thecbpn.com, and we'll see you guys next time.